0: I've seen it, I've experienced it, but me telling people is of no benefit to me whatsoever because whether they believe us or not, it's not important. I know what I've seen and that's just important to me. That's the first question. Did you take
1: a photo? And so it immediately puts you on the defensive because when you say no, people say, well, it didn't happen. You're on the back foot of what's your little story.
0: Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter and thanks for joining me. Hello and welcome to Big Cat Conversations. This is episode 72 and we're releasing this one early in April 2022. This edition features some untold stories of tracking the Exmoor beast back in the 1980s. That is when the big cat reports from Exmoor really got going. And we'll also touch on Herefordshire sightings a bit later on, and that is because our guest Craig has lived in Herefordshire now for 23 years, but as a young teenager he was staying on a farm in Exmoor and found himself caught up in a family's encounters with a big cat. So Craig, hello and welcome to the show
1: good evening rick how are you
0: very good thanks craig thank you for joining us and thanks for getting in touch so uh stuff from the exmoor beast times of the 1980s presumably when you were staying on this farm you knew nothing about big cats but then it all started kicking off is that right yeah
1: it's as simple as that really rick so um i was born in a in city birmingham and um I found my way to Exmoor via my parents who honeymooned down there and were camping on a farm called Brendan Barton, which is on the edge of Exmoor by Brendan Common. The farmers, Dick and Lorna French, didn't have any children of their own. And um, over the 13 years, up until I, I was old enough to work on the farm, my older brother used to work on the farm. And from 12 to 13 onwards, I spent every school holiday there, you know, weekends as well, six weeks in the summer. Easter time, Christmas, half terms, and you, you can imagine the freedom that you know a, a lad from inner city Birmingham gained from being let loose on a 365 acre sheep farm. It was a, truly a wonderful time.
0: It was your adopted second home, and you became very familiar with the area.
1: I did, you know, it introduced to me um, the countryside in 1983. You know, it was before big mechanisation. A lot of the farmers still used binders to cut the corn. Everything was very manual, and there wasn't a lot of automation. And it was just a phenomenal introduction that lives with me to this day and built in me a huge love for the countryside and uh, Exmoor in particular.
0: The Brendan Hills, can you just tell listeners which part of Exmoor that is? At that time, the first incidents involving what became known as the Exmoor Beast tended to be right on the southwest edge of Exmoor. But the Brendan Hills is a bit further east of that, isn't it?
1: The Brendan Hills are, if you know where Exford and Simmons Bath are, There's the road that goes over to um, Dune Valley, where Lorna Dune, the book, was written by uh, R.H. Blackmore. And in between those two points, you've got um, the Chains Hills and you've got Brendan Common. The farm was about six miles outside of Linton and about five miles from Simmons Bath and about 10 miles from Exford.
0: Midwest, I would say, I would call that Midwest of Exmoor National Park, perhaps, as it is now.
1: That's right. Absolutely.
0: How did it build up to the events on the farm?
1: So Exmoor folk are stoic hill farmers, you know, and unless they can see something with their own eyes, they don't believe in. So there's been a little bit of debate and conversation in the local pub. And the first time I heard about it is I was in a pub called the Blue Ball Pub. I was only 12 at the time. And a German tourist, of all things, came running into the pub in a heck of a state and said that he'd been followed from a, a farm called Wilsham Farm up to a place called county gate by an animal and that was the very first time we heard about it no one really took him seriously everybody thought it was a dog or a sheepdog or something but that was the very first time we heard it and that was in easter 1983 so around about the time that um, the cat or whatever it was was uh, predating on eric lay's farm over at south Moulton.
0: your farm actually had experiences and sightings and started tracking it so could you tell us all about that
1: Quite simply, back in 1983, fox furs, very politically incorrect today, were still worth some money in those days. So I used to go out foxing with two or three local farmers, um, young lads. They were in their early 20s and I was 12 or 13 at the time. And they had access to an old Toyota 4x4 truck. I was in charge of the lamp and the lamp wasn't very bright and it was connected to this lead acid battery. So I would stand up in the back of the truck and the truck would pull up alongside a hedgerow. We'd shine the light over into fields to see if we saw any foxes' eyes and any hunters listening to this know that foxes' eyes are extremely distinctive um, when they light up. They're like glowing, floating candles. And then we'd go into the field and we'd chase the foxes down and we'd shoot them. And um, look, ultimately, foxes are fairly destructive as well. And at lambing time, it was about keeping the uh, the predation of the lambs down as well because we lost quite a few lambs. The way the first sighting happened, it was very surreal. And you know, again, I was only a 13-year-old kid at the time. We pulled up alongside a field, and we were shooting over three different farms. We were shooting over a farm that Dick and Lorna owned, 365 acres. Then we were shooting over a farm that belonged to a, a family called the Piles at the time, and that was a couple of hundred acres. And then another farm. And that was another couple of hundred acres. So we had about you know, five, six hundred acres to shoot over. And this simply happened. We pulled alongside a field on the edge of the common. The field was called Scob Hill or Pile Hill. We shone the lamp over the hedge, or I did, and we saw a fox. So we went into the field to shoot the fox. And as we were driving towards the fox, there were sheep in the field. We saw a pair, of, I saw a pair of eyes come up over the back of the sheep that I thought was just lying down asleep. And I said to the guy next to me, it looked like a badger. And the next second, this thing stood up in front of us, and it was no more than 50 meters away. And it was in the headlights of the truck, and it was in the spotlight that I was holding as well. And it sounds ridiculous, but it's almost as though time stood still, because none of us could appreciate or understand what we were looking at. Now, I was in a truck with three third, fourth, fifth generation sheep farmers, and they know what's around in those hills, and, and none of them could understand what we were looking at. It was almost a comedy moment. This animal looked at us. We looked at it. The truck stopped. I kept the light on it, and then one of the guys in the back of the truck suddenly woke up and said, drive, 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 to the driver, and we went after this animal, which we still didn't know what it was, and we, we got a little closer, so we probably got to within about 30 meters of it, and we had it in two big bright headlights off a Toyota truck and my spotlight. And, you know, I I say to this day, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind um, to what we saw. It was a very large animal, large black cat. It was running away from us with its tail vertical in the air, its head extremely low to the ground. Its ears were set back on its head. It was black. It was muscular. And before we could get any closer, it went straight over, cleared a hedgerow that was a good five feet high with beech trees on top of it. We then went down to the gate, and there was, thankfully there was no gate going into the next field, it was just open, and we went straight into the field, and this animal was going at such a speed, heading across the field, because the next field bordered the actual moorland of Brendan Common. And we chased it again, and um, afterwards I, we, we sat down in the in the pub and said, how fast were we going? And the chap driving the truck, and I won't give names, reckons that we were doing about 35 to 40 across this field and we only gained on it as it got near to the hedge because I think in hindsight it slowed down to jump up onto the hedge and then again something really quite comical happened it launched itself at the hedge but for some reason it couldn't reach the top of the bank and it hit the beach hedge and I always remember thinking to myself it's true why they say that cats land on their feet because the animal almost rebounded backwards off the hedge Landed on all four paws, and then instantly, before anyone could do anything else, it was back up on top of the hedge and gone. And if you can imagine at this time, you know, we're all thinking, what have we just seen? Uh, The truck then pulled alongside the hedge, and I shone the light over onto the moorland, and nothing, we couldn't see a thing. So this animal had disappeared at an incredible rate of knots. That's the first sighting, and you know, I probably think about it once a month, and you know, I'll come back to what we saw. There were three adults in the car, two guys shooting, one driving, myself as a 13-year-old. And while I'm telling you this story now, I can see it in my memory, large, black, tail bolt upright, head down, ears back, going hell for leather to get away from the truck. And again, thinking today about what I was going to say to you, that the one point that really sticks in my mind is that the animals seemed to be very, very intelligent. Because I recall at one point, and bearing in mind this whole encounter probably lasted no more than a couple of minutes it looked back at us as we were chasing it in the first field I couldn't quite see its eyes but you almost thought that it there was a lot of intelligence there because when he went when the animal he or she jumped over the first hedge you know I just got the feeling that this wasn't the first time this animal this cat had been chased by humans and it knew what it was doing and it knew how to get away from us it knew it had to put cover between us and it it knew it had to get out onto the moor and you know that that was the first sighting and it was uh, really quite surreal and we went to the pub that evening because in those good old days 13 year olds went to the pub for a pint of shandy <laughs> and uh, a group of local farmers had been assembled for us to tell them about this because you know there'd been quite a bit of predation in the area more than the normal foxes and the only way local farmers would believe it is if it came from another local farmer And so we sat in the pub called the Blue Ball Inn on Countersbury, hill above Lynmouth, and we had all of the farming families there, probably six local families, and we told them what we'd seen. That really started local farmers checking on their stock on a regular basis, which is a bit pointless because, you know, the animal could enter a field as soon as you've left it and, you know, everyone was lambing at that time. And all the local farmers from that point onwards started to believe what we'd seen because... We had no reason to lie. We had no reason to make it up. And there were three local guys telling them exactly what we'd seen.
0: And what were the kind of reactions amongst your group, your immediate group who witnessed it? And what were their explanations? Were you all convinced it was a cat? And what kind of emotional reactions and tactical reactions were there amongst the group?
1: As a 13 year old, I was quite scared. You know, I'd suddenly seen an animal up close and personal. That you only think exists in a zoo so i was pretty scared and um, but the, the three other guys in the car as uh, say third generation sheep farmers they were adamant at uh, what they'd seen and they were very angry with themselves for not shooting at it because at one point we were within i think about 25 to 30 meters and they got shotguns with them they got it's called alpha max which is very large bb in the shotguns and You know, in hindsight, it's a really good job they didn't because with a truck bumping all over the place, an animal running as fast as it could, the worst that could have happened is we could have injured this animal. But everyone was just quite shocked. And as a child amongst these adults who I sort of idolized, I thought, blimey, if they're upset and they can't believe what they've seen, I should be quite scared. And, and, And I genuinely was quite scared because at that time I was spending a lot of time out lambing by myself, you know. It sounds a bit strange at thirteen, but um, you know, I was, I was a really accomplished um, young farmer at that point, and I was quite often left looking after the lambing ewes in the daytime. You know, I thought, you know, this was quite scary. But the three guys were adamant. You know, they all said to me, "What did you see?" And I explained, it, and when we all agreed that we'd seen exactly the same thing,
0: and there was no context for it other than the German tourists, as you say, it hadn't been in the papers a lot, and you were probably one of the first. Set of people who actually admitted. There may have been other people who witnessed something, but you obviously were the first people to declare it and bring a meeting to the pub. What were the attitudes? Was everybody fairly concerned because they were sheep farmers and felt it was likely to snaffle sheep? Was it something that was something which had to be countered, or did some people feel sympathy towards it? What were the range of emotions and attitudes?
1: Yeah, no, no one felt any sympathy toward it at all you know being a sheep farmer in Exmoor is extremely tough to make a living and you know the, the weather can kill half of your lambs if they're caught outside there was absolutely no sympathy at all they wanted this thing caught and they wanted it shot and they wanted it dead I remember Dick French and bless him he you know he's like a father to me he died when I was 27 he summed it up he said um, you know in, in his old Exmoor accidents he said uh, this sort of thing shouldn't be about on the moor and everyone agreed it was quite interesting actually because as soon as um almost the dam had been broken then lots of people some very credible people started talking to us about it as well and there was a, a family that used to come and work on the farm over eastern they came from west anstey which is um where johnny kingdom used to live and uh, the next day they said yeah we've heard all about this it's taking a lot of animals over at south malton eric lay's having a, a heck of a time and um, they then told us a few days later or a week or so later that the Ministry of Defence and the, and the government were sending some Royal Marine commanders to try and kill it. It's like all of these things, isn't it? You know, as, as soon as someone credible, and not a 13-year-old lad from Birmingham, but these three farmers, said that they saw it, then all of a sudden everybody opened up and you know, everybody agreed that whatever it was, it needed to be dealt with. And it needed to be dealt with quickly.
0: Later on, when we chat, especially from the Herefordshire context, we can talk about how attitudes may be a little bit different now because maybe the context is a bit different now because they're not necessarily demonstrating that they're automatic sheep consumers in large amounts, and that may change attitudes now. But in terms of the explanations for it, what were people's assumptions and thoughts? Because we heard Eric Lay on the podcast yeah. many episodes ago now say that where he was on southwest uh, part of Exmoor, there had been a fairly local guy actually exercising a couple of big cats that he had as you know domestic trophy pets. guarding pets maybe they got loose but it strikes me that if something is as streetwise as the one you saw you said you know it sort of knew how to evade human contact maybe it's not a sort of recent release but what were people's assumptions about the origins of this cat at the time
1: it's funny because the reason i contacted you to start with rick is that i listened to your episode about eric lay and it settles a lot of things in my mind and, and questions and the chap who used to come over to us from West Ansty told us that same story. I can't remember. I think he said it was an, uh, an electrician's or a... I
0: think Eric Lay said a uh, butcher's pets or guarding animals or whatever.
1: He had two of these animals, and the story was very similar. You know, he didn't talk about South Mollen Common. He just said that, um, you know, they have kept as pets and, and taken out and exercised. But I come back to you, that animal that we saw, most definitely, it was intelligent enough to be scared of humans and uh, say the way it looked back at us and and the way it it didn't really jink in the lights because I think it probably worked out the straight line was the fastest approach but it was definitely streetwise and intelligent and you know we were in a 15 acre field and it could have if it had decided to turn right and run away from us downhill, which is where most animals go when they're chased. We could probably have caught it and run it over with the truck maybe. I, I don't know. But this animal was definitely intelligent enough to work out that the best way to get away from us was a couple of hundred metres away. It was a hedge, and he was going over it. But, yes, yeah, so, so there the, were the rumours around that, um, the, the butchers. And, and also someone told a really old-fashioned story about some sort of circus in Porlock years and years ago losing some animals but you know it was a, such a long time ago I, I genuinely can't remember any more than that but the butchers or or electricians it was definitely mentioned that someone had had a couple of animals and they'd moved up country was the phrase and, and no one knew what had happened to them
0: okay yet i mean i've had very credible reports earlier from exmoor I got one from a postman in uh, south Moulton area from 1966 and, and the neighboring postman on the neighboring round had also seen it and he'd been to Malaysia and knew about black leopards from there. A couple more questions then, setting the scene and the context, because I know there's another sighting in this area coming up mm. for you in a minute. Did people think there might have been more than one? Was it just the beast on one, or did people see different sizes? Or through your network, did people report different colours even?
1: No, it was definitely just a single beast, and it was definitely the one that we'd seen, which was large and black, very muscular, yeah there, there were no comments or feedback about different colored animals or seeing multiple animals or cubs it was just the beast it's quite funny because um you know Exmoor folk always like to have a bit of a giggle and there was a the family of the Floyds down there who was still big farmers down there now and they saw an opportunity to, to make a few quid so they got t-shirts made up with the Exmoor beasts on the front and sold those at the local pub they made a few quid out of that. that was quite funny
0: It's a nice bit of the folklore, you know, emerging and evolving through local people. And, uh, well, of course, there's the Exmoor Beast beer, isn't there, which is uh, very good. All helps develop the brand, doesn't it, that lives on today. So that's nice when local people sort of make the most of it in different ways. You're mentioning before we turned the mic on that listening to the Eric Lay interview, it made you realise that actually these animals sometimes snaffle their prey from above not just an ambush out of the scrub as it were on level ground so were people thinking about how it was killing sheep and people just saw it as as a sheep killer rather than a deer killer and threatening their livelihoods largely then
1: before our sighting a few animals had gone missing but you know this this is Exmoor it's lambing season and you've got heavily pregnant ewes so sheep can die and you know anyone listening to this who's a sheep farmer know that sheep will just lie down and die for no reason at all and sometimes they get themselves into places where you can never find them so we'd had a few sheep go missing as everyone had but we just put it down to you know the, the normal trials and tribulations of being a, a hill sheep farmer but after our sighting things really started to ramp up a couple of things happened that at the time made no sense at all but listening to eric lay's interview talking about the animal potentially jumping off a hedge really now makes sense and and, and one of them is this that um. When you have doubles or a ewe has two lambs on Exmoor, we always used to put these little plastic Macs on them to keep the worst of the weather off them. And it just helped them survive hypothermia and and, and cold wind. One night um, we went into, sorry, one day we went into a field called Oldfield, which was literally behind the farmhouse. It was about 100 feet behind the farmhouse. The day before we put a whole load of doubles out there and these Macs have numbers on. So you spray paint the number onto the ewe and then you put, so if you put a number 10 onto the ewe with some spray paint, you then put Max onto her lambs that have number 10 on them as well. We went into the field and we have got four sets of double lambs missing. Not the ewes, just the lambs. We couldn't find them anywhere. I mean, these, these are eight lambs and they're only small animals because they'd only been born maybe three, four, five days earlier. Kept in the sheds until they'd, they'd taken some milk and they were able to stand and then put outside into a nursing field. And um, we couldn't find them anywhere. They completely disappeared, and about four or five days after that, we were repairing some fence up on the the hedge that rounded Oldfield, that goes almost into the field where we had the first sighting. And I found, or I was with a, another guy, we found a whole load of chewed up—well, I said chewed up—that's an exaggeration—a whole load of torn plastic mats. And they were up on top of the bank, about three feet up into the beach hedge. So the bank is maybe five foot high and the beach hedge is another five foot. And when we took them back down to the farm, Dick, the farmer, said, oh, you know, they've obviously come off the lambs and they've blown up into the hedge. But these weren't just on the side of the hedge as though the wind had blown them there. They were deep into the hedge and it was really quite strange. And at that time, no one could work that out now. And I I think, well, I wonder if this cat had jumped on these lambs. I mean, to kill, I think it was over two nights, actually, but to take eight lambs over two nights and we didn't find any any bits of lamb at all there's no signs of a disturbance for these little animals these lambs couldn't have weighed more than maybe 5 6 pounds each but we did find the plastic maxes though this cat had sat up in the hedge chewed them up and spat out the max and the bits it didn't like and i always remember that thinking you know as a, even as a 13 year old it didn't make sense to me that these maxes could all be in the same place and all have blown into the hedge And now when you think about it, you know, perhaps that's an explanation that the way these animals were traversing the field so they weren't seen in open because, you know, they're ambush predators is they were going through the hedges.
0: For people who don't know the southwest hedges, particularly Exmoor and nearby hedges, they are hedge banks, aren't they? So they actually are solid enough for an animal to walk along. Um, They're not like a sort of hawthorn, blackthorn hedge. That an animal would would really struggle to sort of tiptoe and walk along, but they are solid things that are called actually hedge banks.
1: Indeed, they are. You know, so, so I, I think back to that, now, I think you know that was almost you can't say for definite, can you? Thirty-five years on or thirty-seven years on, but it's an amazing coincidence that that happened. After that, um, people started to lose sheep, so we actually called in the Devon and Somerset foxhounds a couple of times to try and track this thing, and and, and they managed to track it a fair old distance, and then. It would just disappear. And that was when uh, Captain Ronnie Wallace was the, in charge of the hunt out of the export kennels. And I remember listening to him telling people that they'd, they'd lost the scent in um, some woods at a place called um, Cloutsham Farm. And the scent had completely disappeared. And I often think now, if only Ronnie Wallace and his hounds had looked up, this, like, this cat could have been in the trees above them. No one knows. But, but again, you know, farmers didn't know what we were dealing with. We didn't know what we were, even though we told them what we'd seen. And they genuinely still weren't really aware of how one of these animals acts and and behaves.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was all trial and error. Very interesting to hear about some of the the activities that people got up to to try and catch up with it and never really succeeded, as Eric Lay mentioned as well. What was it being referred to? Was it being dubbed the beast? or, Or did some people say, actually, this is most likely a black leopard or similar?
1: No, there was no breakdown of type of animal. People just said, it's the beast. There were still a couple of people who thought it was a rogue dog, but it definitely wasn't. But everyone just referred to it as the beast or, you know, normally with a couple of swear words before and after. It was genuinely acknowledged and the local publican saw it once in a lane as well, jumping up into a hedge. And a couple of very credible people had sightings. The local policeman saw it, if I remember, the local police sergeant from Linton. That's my recollection from being 13. When you see something like that at a young age, you tend not to forget it.
0: There was a second sighting, and the second sighting accompanied a uh, carcass. You were saying, so if we, could we hear about that?
1: Yes, indeed. So, so at that point, we then started going out every three or four hours throughout the night. So, you know, we'd we'd go out at last light, which at that time of year was I don't know, probably seven thirty, eight o'clock, and then every four hours or so, and um, two people would go out in a Land Rover, and one of them would be armed. And I was thirteen, so it wasn't me. We'd always go out and just cruise around the fields just making sure the the ewes were okay we went into a field so there's there's a couple of fields one's called big scob hill and then there's another field called cranscombe scob hill and all of these fields are very close and 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 abutting and adjoining where we saw the cat to start with and where things had happened and we drove into one field with the lights off i was stood in the back of a land rover with a spotlight and Dick French, the farmer's driving the Land Rover, and we got someone with us with a shotgun. And uh, as we went over the brow of a hill on Cranscomb' Scoble, we saw a, a ewe lying on its back. This was a field with ewe's in that hadn't yet had, uh, had their lambs, so they were heavily pregnant. We all thought that this ewe had fallen over, and when they're that heavily pregnant they get caught on their back and they can't get upright so we genuinely just thought that this this ewe had got stuck on its back on the side of a hill and normally what happens is you jump out of the land rover you go over and roll this ewe over it gets up gives you a dirty look and, and walks off but as again we got to within about 100 feet sort of 30 40 meters from behind this ewe a pair of eyes appeared it was exactly the same as we'd seen the first time around th- those eyes and I can't remember what I said, but I think I said something along the lines of, it's the cat or the animal, it's the animal. At that point, this cat stood up, looked at us, and took off so, so quickly. And again, it's in the spotlight, it's in the headlights, and we're looking at it from 30, 40 metres away. The speed, it cleared probably 200 metres of the field, and then was straight over the hedge. This time, almost seemed that it didn't touch the top in one bound, and was gone onto the moor, and when we uh, we went over, and everyone again was like, "My goodness, we obviously stronger words. We can't believe we've seen that." I was scared and wouldn't get out of the truck. The guy with the shotgun got out and wandered over, and then and then you know we drove up and put the headlights onto the ewe, and, and and the ewe was clearly dead. We couldn't see any bite marks on the 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 face of the ewe at all. We could see a bit of blood around its neck, and the way it had been eaten out is. And it was strange that we couldn't see this when we first saw it. The ewe had been hollowed out from the back end. So on one side, it looked perfectly OK, the side we saw. But on the other side, that the whole of the stomach and the flanks had been completely hollowed out. And whatever it was, and it was a cat because we saw it, had been feasting on the internal organs of the sheep. And, you know, it, again, it was surreal to be stood there. This was probably um, it wasn't long before four light actually. So it was maybe four o'clock can't remember completely but the steam was rising off this carcass dick french the farmer just looked at me and he said something along the lines of now i believe you because you know i think at the time he was probably thinking a 13 year old lad etc we put the sheep in the or the carcass in the back of the land rover took it back to the farm and by sheer coincidence that same day a, a vet from south malton was on the farm doing something with one of dick's horses dick bred stallions had a very famous stallion called french chalk who sired lots of horses in the in in the 80s and the vet was out doing something for the stallion so dick asked the vet to take a look at this carcass and we um put a rope around its back legs pulled it up over a beam and, and, and the vet skinned it there and then in front of us and you could clearly see that when he took the skin off around the neck there were puncture wounds either side of the throat And the vet, of course, this would have been the same vet that was probably involved at Eric Lay's farm. And he knew a bit more about this, because I think at that time they'd been talking to um, a a zoo somewhere. And I didn't know this at the time, but he said that this is how big cats kill their prey. They bite them and drag them down and, and suffocate them. And apart from the big bite marks, puncture wounds either side of the trachea, it had also got marks in the back of its neck that we hadn't been been able to see because of the fleece that looked like three or four small drag marks. And, and again, the vet said, well, what a big cat does. He said, he it puts its paw around the back of its neck, pulls it down, bites around the muzzle and suffocates the ewe. And um, yeah, uh, again, you know, if only we'd taken pictures of that, if only we'd had camera phones, if only we'd had dash cams, we'd have some phenomenal evidence, you know, but Oh, that was quite a shock as well. And um, we had a couple couple of other sheep killed after that um, within a couple of days. And one was killed in a very, very strange way by having both of its front legs bitten off. Not a mark on it anywhere else, but both its front legs had been bitten off. And I don't know what what happened there, but we found this ewe again in the same field. And it then got into a bit of a siege mentality because I was there for three weeks over school or two and a half weeks over school holidays. And at that time, so, so from then on, all the lambing ewes were brought in every single night. But I think Dick was lambing something like 2,000 ewes over a six to eight week period. And you obviously couldn't keep them all in sheds. So it carried on and um, that was it really. That was it for my immediate experiences as a young 13-year-old lad on the farm then.
0: Very interesting about the, the vet skinning it because uh, sometimes you can't see the puncture wounds at the trachea sort of windpipe area on a deer or, or sheep or whatever on the prey unless you skin it well and then as you say sometimes you could then see the pin marks where they they pinned it and grappled with it it must have been very good for you to see that and as you say what a shame that wasn't photographed because that would have been very very helpful reference material um we've got us yeah. yeah go on
1: no, sorry, I was just remembering the, the vet explaining that when a dog attacks and kills a sheep, they make a heck of a mess because they tend to drag the ewe down from the back end and there'll be wool and blood everywhere. We described the scene and, and there wasn't a mark, you know, there wasn't a mark on the ground. Um, there was a little bit of blood and that was it from where this animal had obviously hollowed this ewe out from the back end. But there was no sign of a disturbance, there were no kick marks, there was no wool or so to start with. We just thought the sheep had fallen over on its back and needed us to roll it over onto its feet. From the side that we could see, it looked perfectly well.
0: Just quickly on the front legs issue, I do feel that that's a potential fox. I sent some trail cameras to a farm where they definitely have got big cat impacts, no doubt about it whatsoever. But the trail camera on a photo burst got a picture of a very large fox disabling this ewe at the front legs. And it wasn't able to dispatch the ewe. The ewe survived, but had horrific injuries. But it does show that that is more canid type of impact because obviously they haven't got the jaw power and the tools of the trade to pull down an adult sort of ewe and sink their canines across the uh, the windpipe to suffocate it. So front leg impacts could be canid, you know, dog or fox. But uh, And of course that is part of the problem. You might have other... Explanations for some of the impacts on sheep, but it could all get blamed on the cat, and sometimes vice versa. Sometimes I think the cat doesn't get blamed when maybe a cat has been responsible, and people just assume it's a rogue dog. That's why the sightings that you had helped cement the case.
1: The legs weren't there, so whatever bitten the front legs off had taken the legs with it. You know, so it was it was quite strange. And um after that, it, it calmed down a little bit because so I, I went back to school about a week after that. But uh, but again, in hindsight it was quite a a rough year and a wet year there were quite a few lambs and and ewes that died and in those days the hunts you used to put all your dead stock into one place away from the farm 100 meters from the farm and the hunt would come and pick up the carcasses to feed the hounds so I often wonder but did did the weather getting worse actually calm it down because perhaps this cat or this animal was finding plenty of dead stuff to eat and and, and I I haven't done the maths on a map but Across the moor to South Molton, from where we were, wasn't very far. So I wonder whether the cat was living with us and then going to South Molton, or living in South Molton and coming to us. But that's the extent of my experiences. Two very close-up sightings, and unequivocally, what I saw looked like the same animal both times.
0: And uh, just quickly, word of the week. We felt that uh, the best way of covering word of the week was to think about some traditional Exmoor terms or names for locations or whatever and it's the vet actually stripping the the carcass that made you think of an Exmoor name we should uh, just um, refer to for our word of the week if you could explain that
1: yeah so the word is shippon s-h-i-p-p-o-n it's old Exmoor term for um, a cattle shed and when the, uh, the, the vet strung up the carcass, he did it in what we call bull shipping, which is where uh, in the summer all the bulls would go to be inoculated or tested by the vet. So, yeah, shipping, good old Exmoor word.
0: Brilliant. Was this Devon or Somerset or right on the border part of Exmoor?
1: It's right on the border, actually, because from the farm, from the fields where all of this activity took place, we could actually see the A39 Coast Road. and There's a place called County Gate, which is about seven or eight miles out of Porlock we were into Devon but not far from the Somerset border.
0: Now all around that time the media were getting interested and it sounds like where you were they were out of the limelight was that deliberate or did the media just never track you down or did the media ever turn up and, and ask for, for comments from the farmers?
1: Not on our farm you know I think all of the action was taking place over at um, South Morton, and they got you know the Raw Marines running around and then the police there and Exmoor farmers are pretty private people and the last thing they really wanted and they did talk about this in the pub is they didn't want some lunatic coming on the land and ending up making the situation worse or accidentally shooting someone so so there was debate and talk about that and you know it was it was quite a, a closed group really there was never any interest in attracting the attention of anyone it was all about we'll try and deal with this in our own way
0: Right, we're now going to fast forward 15 years, aren't we? Because you had we a are. sighting, yeah. During that 15 years, it was just something that was in your memory. But did you talk about it much? Did it influence you much in the uh, years before the sighting later?
1: Not really, because I, I didn't tell anyone about it. Because I was a 13-year-old lad from inner city Birmingham, and who was going to believe me when I went back to school and said, I've had a heck of a time at Easter. I've been chasing big cats around the countryside. And Now, even my own parents didn't believe me. And um, my my dad died 20 years ago. And I don't think he believed me till the day he died. And my mom believes me now because, you know, she's seen um, some of the other stuff in the media. But um, I didn't talk to anyone about it. I told my wife about it, obviously. But, um, you know, it's not the sort of thing that you talk to people about. It's different now as an adult, of course. But um, at the time, a 13-year-old living in inner-city Birmingham certainly didn't go around saying, guess what I saw at Easter
0: yeah, so what happened 15 years later?
1: As I said, you know, I was in love with Exmoor and I'll retire one day down there. And My, my wife and I, I were down on again on Brendan Common. We were parked in a car park. We'd been married about a year and we were just watching the sunset. And um, and, and it's really strange again, but in exactly the same field where we saw that first, um, I, I had that first sighting where it jumped over the bank onto the moor and ran off. And we sat there in a car park looking at the view, watching the sunset over the Bristol Channel, which was obviously some way away. And I saw out the corner of my eye a black animal slinking down the edge of a field. And then it went out of my eyesight. And at this point, I was obviously out of the car looking, saying to my wife, can you see that? Can you see that? And then it came back into our eyesight, jumped up onto the hedge. And this was probably a distance of about 150 metres. And it was getting dark. And it then... The only description, I asked my wife only a couple of hours ago how she would describe its movement, and she said it was like someone was pouring a glass of water off the edge of, the, of the, um, the bank because the way this animal moved, it just slinked and slithered so sublimely smoothly down onto the road. And then if anyone is listening to this and they know the road, there's a place called Brendan Two Gates where the farm farming land finishes and, and, the, and the common land starts, and there's a cattle grid there. And this animal was the wrong side of the cattle grid. And literally, I think it was only one band. It just jumped over the cattle grid. And the cattle grid must be 8, 10 feet. And then it sat there looking, um, looking as though it owned the place for maybe 30 seconds or so. We didn't have a camera. And then as it was starting to get dark, I put my headlights on main beam straight onto it to try and get a glimpse. And literally, as soon as the light hit it, it was gone. But again, it brought back all those feelings and all those emotions of seeing it as a young lad. And I said to my wife, I said, how on earth it can't be the same animal? I was 13 when I first saw it. I was 27 now. So 14 years later, it can't be the same animal. And really, from then on, I've been interested in the, in the bigger picture of these cats must be breeding. And unless it's some sort of supernatural thing, which it obviously isn't, it's flesh and blood, it could not be the same animal.
0: Unless it had been an absolute cub. 15 years is about the lifespan in the wild of, of one that's healthy and everything. But, of course, it wasn't a cub when you first saw it. It was a full-grown adult.
1: It was huge. It was absolutely huge. You know, um, and We've had dogs in my family my entire life, and we've also had Labradors and Retrievers. And, and this animal I saw was bigger than either of those. And the muscles in it, as the muscles flexed and, and as the animal ran and brought its feet forward, it didn't look like a cub to me. But yeah, I mean, to see that animal again, in, in some way, after I'd calmed down, I, I was quite chuffed to have a, a third sighting. It was almost as though it was saying hello to me, you know. It was very, very surreal, actually. Very surreal.
0: Was it very similar to the original sightings? Was this the same species, do you think?
1: Yeah, I was much further away. So, you know, I, I was 150 metres as opposed to 30 metres, which is the closest we got when I was 13. It looked the same. It moved the same. It was the same colour, but it was getting dark. But, you know, I was 27 then with perfect eyesight, not so much now. But it looked exactly the same to me. It did indeed. And, and, and the way it just sat there on the road and looked around with such an air of nonchalance, it was comfortable in its surroundings. And, and as soon as I say, as soon as I flicked those lights on it, boom, it was gone absolutely quickly. But it, it looked extremely similar, Rick. Yes, it did.
0: Again, all the signs of something wild and not freshly released and confident and fit, do you reckon?
1: Yes, yes, confident, fit. You know, I was thinking about this again today. There was no sign it was it was injured or limping. It just looked like a, an animal in peak physical condition. You know that was living and adapting to its environment. It really did.
0: Did you discuss that sighting with anybody else? Presumably, you have still got contacts in Exmoor. Did Did you mention that to them and get any feedback?
1: I didn't really because um, sadly Dick had died about a year before that, and his wife Lorna was. Um, A a very, very lovely lady, and we popped in to see her for a cup of tea, but um, I didn't talk to her about it, no.
0: Okay, yeah. So now you've been in Herefordshire with your wife and family for 23 years. I'm not far from Herefordshire, neighbouring county, and so I get reports through the grapevine from Herefordshire and have done for years, and I've um, examined uh, sheep kills in Herefordshire and had all kinds of feedback and gossip to me. So parts of it are very uh, remote and wild so, you must hear about sightings there through your network, but you've actually had one sighting yourself as well, albeit a very brief glimpse. So, could we hear about that one, please?
1: I know, again, to listeners, it sounds hard to believe that I've had three sightings um, in total, but um, four actually. Mm. Um, th- this was a very, very quick sighting. It was a totally different coloured cat. So, we live in rural Herefordshire, and I just let the dogs out into the garden, and I was being sent off to get a Chinese takeaway from a, a place called Lysinton. There was nothing in my mind apart from go and get tea, come back, get some sleep. We got the young lad at that time and he wasn't sleeping that well. I was about a quarter of a mile from the house, turned right at a junction, started to go up a hill and incredibly quickly from left to right, off a hedge, through an open gateway, an animal flew in front of my car. I got a mobile phone and I rang my wife and again, I asked her today, what did I say to you? She said, get the dogs in. I've just seen a lion. That's exactly what I said oh. to her. I know it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But I thought, well, I've just let the dogs out. This animal's 400 metres from the house. And, and again, the animal I saw this time, it was so quick. But it was big, and it was fawn, light-coloured, and it looked like it had been having a fairly hard time. It was big and fluffy. So for some time, my wife used to take the mickey out of me regularly, about, don't go out in the dark, you might see another lion. Thinking back, uh, I, I tried to look for some tracks the next day in daylight, but the ground was hard, um, and, and that was back in 2003. But then we lived about 100 meters away from a lady called Laura, and she'd got um she'd got a horse and some stables. And about a year after this, she came uh, knocking on my door one morning in a heck of a state, and she said that she'd gone to let her horse out. Her horse was called um Carlsberg. And um, she'd gone to let her horse out of the stable. And it was a really cold, wet winter. You know, it was pretty brutal. She'd been woken up by the horse whinnying and making a heck of a racket. So she'd gone to let him out to see what was up with him. And as she'd opened the, the stable door, Carlsberg, she was, so was going into a stable block. The horse was in, 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 a, um, in a pen on the left or a loose box on the left with the door closed so he could just look over the top. And she said, as she opened the door, the security light had already come on, so there was bright light everywhere. This animal ran out of the um ran out of the stable door and actually hit her legs and knocks her backwards into the door that she was opening and you know she she was adamant that what she saw was a big black cat and and she knew I was interested in this stuff because they were neighbors and we'd had a few drinks a few times, and I'd talked about this stuff, so she came to tell me and i said i said laura, I believe you and um That was back in 2003. And interestingly enough, there's a a local green councillor who lives close by us. And uh, his partner saw a similar animal to the one I saw in the same location about six months after I saw it. And I only found that out about three or four weeks ago, talking to some friends. They're absolutely around here, Rick. And um, I'm convinced they're at their breeding. And, you know, there's, there's probably a lot more of them than there were when I was 13.
0: The one you saw would most likely on reflection to have been a mountain lion, puma, cougar, the sandy brown one.
1: I got my headlights on main beam, but it was very, very light. And I suppose the lights from my car reflected, but it was definitely tawny or fawn. Yes, tawny or fawn. But it wasn't a dog. I know it wasn't a dog. I've been around dogs all of my life. I've got three Labradors upstairs now. And you can tell this animal didn't move like a dog. The speed it moved wasn't like a dog. And, you know, it covered the lane, which is maybe twenty feet wide.
0: Did you see its tail?
1: I didn't actually. I didn't and um I've often thought about that. So I don't know whether whether when cats aren't threatened or hunting, do they keep their towels between their legs? I, I genuinely don't know.
0: That can happen a bit, yes. Sometimes a photograph can show that. It can really vary actually. And Frank Tumbridge had one witness who the guy nearly hit the cat. It was so close, and he said the cat what was remarkable is how much the cat had the tail. Curve back parallel to the top of its back and he said it's almost like the cat knew it had to compact itself to avoid a collision including the tail so it didn't want the tail snagged and it wrapped the tail you know up by the body to make itself compact and dark across the road before it was hit so uh, i think it can vary depending on circumstance but they use them like rudders of course for balance as they twist and turn
1: Intelligent animals, Rick. I I mean, back to the one that we chased in the Toyota when I was 13. Its tail was bolt upright, absolutely almost vertical. And and I can see it now in my memory. It's almost vertical. The tail wasn't down at all. And I don't know whether that's because, obviously, we were chasing it with a tonne and a half of Toyota Land Cruiser. I I don't know. But um, a Hilux. sorry, yeah.
0: Just back to the, the one in the stables, I've got two parallels to that that I can mention I don't think I've mentioned either of them before on the podcast I've certainly heard of a couple of times when people have encountered them darting out of a barn when they've got stuck in a barn or they've been in a barn where there hasn't been any human activity for a few days and they've sort of beat the person to the door to get out and not attack the person in fact one of them the guy was absolutely knocked to his feet because it brushed past him at such speed without trying to attack him he was knocked to the ground. And then a stables last year that I visit, they have regular visitor of a big cat and it sometimes is too close for comfort and really freaks out the horses. They had a foal in one of the stables and they left the door, the top part of the door open all night. And it wasn't a sort of immediately young foal, but it was dead on the floor in the stable. They had had the rest of the horses kicking off during the night, which they Associated as a potential big cat visit. They're beating themselves up actually for leaving that top part of the door open because that was obviously an oversight of theirs. They wouldn't have meant to have done that. But they said there was absolutely no blemish on that uh, foal whatsoever. It hadn't been predated or impacted at all. But they wondered if it had had a heart attack with the stress of having the cat sort of get in there and the cat decided, well, this is a bit awkward and it's a bit big to what I'm used to. I'll leave it alone and hop out again. But in just that moment the foal, you know, had a heart attack and that's what happened. So quite plausible. Just shows you the difficulties of living alongside these animals sometimes.
1: One sympathizes, Rick. If you put me in a loose box with one of these animals, I think I might have a heart attack as well, to be honest. Yes.
0: <laughs> living in rural Herefordshire now, amongst people who've um, who've seen them and encountered them, how do you feel about it now on, on reflection and comparison from decades previously? knowing there are more of them about you know how does it influence you and your thoughts on on the topic
1: I think it's fantastic that we have animals like this in our countryside I have to admire them they are obviously living alongside us because there must be a couple of hundred I'd have thought across the UK if not more they're obviously breeding Um, they clearly have no interest in attacking or hurting human beings and i really hope that that stays the same because as soon as a human gets hurt then obviously the authorities have to do something and things might go badly wrong i think they're beautiful animals and i come back to what i saw at the age of 13 i would love to be that close to another wild cat and see them and um i think it's good for the countryside if i could see another one i would love to
0: that's interesting that you started off in a situation where people were intolerant and you could perhaps understand in that situation. It was a totally different background and, and context for it in, in those days. You're the first people to stumble upon it and, and think it was a menace to their livelihood. So you can quite understand that reaction. You would have been with them. It, had they dispatched it that night, you got a clean shot away, you'd have probably been backing that because of the situation then. Is that, is that right?
1: It's absolutely true. You know, I don't earn my living in farming and farming is a tough world and if you've got an animal that's killing and killing for pleasure multiple times, as happened at Eric Lay's farm and over on our side of the mall, not as bad as Eric Lay's, then absolutely that animal needs to go because, you know, farming is tough and you can't have your stock killed because that's the way you make your living. That's the way you put money in the bank and food on the table. So I don't know, but I suspect that some of these animals have already been shot by farmers. I mean, Back on the farm in 1983, we had shotguns, and that's not what you need to deal with an animal this size. You need a you need a rifle of a 7.62 caliber minimum, and then you've got to hit it in the right place. But if you're a farmer, then I would have no problem shooting one of these animals. It's funny, I, I do a lot of shooting now, and I've had a firearms license for 25 years plus, and I shoot competitively out to long distances. And I'm sure that some farmers with rifles have shot some of these animals and just thrown them in the slurry pit or buried them somewhere because they know that to reveal what's happened, um, it'll just cause an awful lot of trouble. And as I say, all of the farmers on Exmoor were then, and I have no reason to believe it's any different, are incredibly private people who just want to get on with their lives and their livelihood and do their job.
0: you probably heard me say on the podcast, though, not all farmers are the same and not all farmers encounter difficulties from these animals and some who do are still accepting and tolerant of them. So it's interesting how attitudes are a bit more subtle and nuanced to what we might imagine. It perhaps does suggest that they're behaving themselves more than we might imagine, especially from a farmer's perspective is a more complex situation, I think. But you've turned to somebody who feels that they are a positive part of the ecosystem now in Britain as they sort of evolve.
1: Yes, no, I'm I'm very benevolent towards them. And um, again, since uh, since the political correctness banned hunting, um, something's got to control the deer population. I was down in Exmoor a few weeks ago walking at a place called Prayway Head and there must have been, I think I must have seen a couple of hundred deer at least. Now, there's an awful lot of red deer on the moor at the moment and perhaps um, the big cats are predating them. I find it difficult, though. I mean, I did find it very interesting in Eric Lay's episode that he said that the animals that had been um, sheep-dipped weren't touched and, um, you know, phosphate dips were outlawed a long time ago now. So you would have thought that sheep are a really easy catch for, you know, a big cat compared to chasing a full-grown red deer or a stag. And you do wonder whether these animals are intelligent enough and, I have no idea to work out that you know they better leave the white fluffy things alone, otherwise it draws attention to them. I have no idea. I would like to think that these are really clever, cunning animals who watch humans going about their day job and are sensible enough to keep out of our way.
0: Well, I think they certainly know how to keep out of trouble largely and work around us. But the sheep dip thing is is something we've mentioned on the podcast a few times, and it's certainly a consistent, it's a common factor that I find. Most of the sheep carcass kills that I've felt have been big cat related that farmers have drawn my attention to. So I've agreed with them largely on the origin of them being cat. Most of those have been untreated sheep, undipped sheep, unsprayed sheep or ones where it was quite a while, you know, months since the last spray or treatment. So I think the chemical smell does make an impact that puts them off. But also in their native countries, if there are wild ungulates like deer then they do prioritise them because they're hardwired to do so, and I think they know it's a better quality food source. And some zookeepers verify the fact that mutton is very much in a second favourite at the feeding time. So I think all of that, you know, does prove that sheep are there, but they're, they're not top of the menu at all.
1: And also, if you think back to farms, there's always dead stuff around on every farm. You know, I worked, as I say, on a massive sheep farm for many, many years, and in in, in the day we'd put the lambing ewes out four five six hundred of them into into fields and maybe 10 20 30 will give birth throughout the day and the afterbirth will be left on the floor you know so there's always plenty of things for these um for predation animals to eat without having to cause disruption and i remember one particular year on Exmoor, i was about 18 at the time the weather was the worst we'd ever had at easter and people were losing so many lambs that um One local farmer just went and dug a huge pit with his JCB and everything got thrown in there. And I often think back, you know what? A couple of today's modern trail cams around that pit, we'd probably have some great footage, right? We would probably have big cats posing for it, wait for the flash. You know, it'd be quite funny.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you're right about afterbirth. It's good, healthy, rich food for mammals to uh, scavenge and forage on, so certainly. Do you talk about it more now with people because you're more confident Or do you pick your moment and pick your people that you'll engage with it about? No,
1: no, I have no problem to talking to anybody about it now and have done for probably 20 years plus, particularly since I saw them close and local to me, the one that ran across the road and then the next door neighbour who came round. And as I say, I only found out a few weeks ago about the local councillor's partner who saw one almost in exactly the same place that I did a few weeks after or before me. So I live in a rural community now and people are still talking about them now I was talking to a a local gamekeeper in the pub about 12 months ago and he'd lost half of his pheasants and he was adamant that it it wasn't a fox and it was something else and we got talking about big cats then and um, I like to educate people as well because people just don't think they think that the English countryside couldn't harbour or support animals of this size and back to the deer conversations back to rabbits you know we've got a lot of muntjac around here as well and there's plenty around for them to eat. The countryside can absolutely support them. And uh, it's a, I say a regular topic of conversation, but it comes up quite often.
0: I um, do the Herefordshire Fair sometimes at the rural shows. It's great for meeting local people from Herefordshire and adjacent counties. And gamekeepers and farmers are amongst you know the people who come to the stall and swap notes and talk about it. And I remember there was one Herefordshire gamekeeper came in, and he saw the model of life-size model puma mountain lion cougar and he said oh yeah the one I saw was uh, just a little bit smaller than that he said uh, we'd had a shoot he said I lost my keys to my Land Rover and I had to, when I came back found them in, and came back in the evening turned the lights on in the Land Rover and started it off and it was pointing along a forest ride and the dogs hadn't picked up all the shot birds <laughs> there, there was a puma helping itself to some of the ones on the ground that that uh, were you know <laughs> were spare so there you are it, it had skulked away during the day's noisy activity and come back for its rich pickings at night when you know everybody had gone another example of how they work around us basically i guess they're
1: so good at camouflaging themselves aren't they i've, I've read so many reports of people who literally walk past something and it's six feet away before it moves and makes them jump those animals that i saw when when, when i was a young man on exmoor i'm they were absolute pitch black and you know you wouldn't know if you're walking up a road with or without a torch whether it was 10 foot behind you and it was noisy because the engine was revving and, and you know we were all talking and just shouting to each other keep the lamp on him and all that sort of stuff and i often wonder how much noise they would make when they walk i bet they're really
0: silent when they walk as well certainly that's what people say certainly yeah you'd expect them to be as well Almost have to be yeah. yeah yeah so good to hear all of this the recent stuff and, and the past stuff and you know, some of the unreported encounters of the x Mob Beast. So very good that we can hear that direct from you. Is there anything finally you'd like to say that we've not covered that you would like to sort of register with us?
1: As I say, this happened to me when I was 13 and I've been very honest with myself over the last few days since we agreed to do this. And I've sat down and written down what I saw and what I recollected and what I recall. It's made me think quite a lot actually about what that animal looked like and how it moved and and how powerful it looked. And um, as I say, I would love to see another one. I've, I've got about an acre, or just under two acre paddock that backs onto lots of other fields uh, by the house. I'm buying a couple of trial cameras to put on there because you never know, do you? You never know what you might catch or, or what you might see.
0: Good luck and keep us posted.
1: I've been incredibly lucky to see what i've seen and um again if only i'd had a camera right it would, have been, would have been phenomenal we'd have been talking about some re- really good evidence but i thought we can't be far away from somebody getting some absolutely 1080 footage of one of these animals against something um, that clearly gives scale
0: it's being prepared to share it particularly if you're as you said how private people you know are on exmoor and if you're a, a rural estate you know with shooting rights and that sort of thing there's many reasons why Property owners and business owners and landowners are not going to share what they've got.
1: That's very, very true. And um, I, think, I think some people are probably scared that if they shot one of these animals, they might end up getting prosecuted. I seem to remember that being a, some sort of debate in the pub back in 1983 that people were worried about shooting it.
0: Oh, yeah, the backlash definitely there's been some shot ones and the reports to me uh, and uh, may- maybe we'll be able to cover some of those eventually on the podcast but you can quite again quite understand why people fear a backlash and want it to uh, kept quiet and we had the small one the physically small one a photograph of the physically small one from Herefordshire a few episodes ago that was on the podcast website and you know looked very interesting about what it would have been if it had it, say it was a young one had it grown up would it have been a, a sort of leopard sized animal It was from a situation in Herefordshire where a farm was experiencing a bigger one taking sheep, and that was the assumed cub or youngster. Okay. And it's interesting, you've been talking about locations. Often we wouldn't be as specific as you've mentioned in terms of farm family names and locations back in Exmoor, but we're talking, you know, a long time ago, aren't we? So back in the 80s, so that's why you're prepared to do that, I guess, yeah.
1: No other reason, and I'd, I'd just like to end on this. And I'd like to, really, if it's okay, just just pay a silent tribute to Dick and Lorna French, who were the most wonderful, genuine, friendly, giving people who were second parents to me. And I, I learned so much about Exmoor and the countryside and the way things used to work before mechanised farming, you know. And it's a, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience as a child. And and I love Exmoor today. And I just wish I both of my lads could have had the same experience of. Growing up on a, a working sheep farm and you know, using binders to cut corn and haymaking and lambing and, and everything else, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And um, I owe both of them a great deal.
0: Very nice to hear that. And does their family generations now are managing the land further? Sadly,
1: Dick died when I was 27, back in uh, 97, I think. And um, Lorna really sadly um, followed him about 18 months afterwards with a, a huge heart attack and they didn't have any children. The farm got sold to an, a, another local family. So at least the farm is in local hands and is, is being farmed as it should. It was terribly sad that they both died without any children because they got so much to give. And they were such loving and warm people. And um, some of the stories Dick used to tell uh, about his childhood and how he grew up and, and, and how the farm came to be his. You know, his father, his father was an off subject now, but his father was a probably these days, you'd probably say an alcoholic, but he, he liked a drink or two. And he sold most of the farm off for money to buy cider. And Dick used to work for the local council in the daytime building the roads. And then he'd work on the farm at night. And um, he got to the point where he bought back every single acre and, and then some besides. I've just remembered, Rick, I don't know whether you want to add this in there. Sorry. Dick had got two farms. He got Brendan Barton Farm. And he got a farm called Fellinscott Farm, which was about four or five miles away from Brendan Barton. And the guy who was farming that for him had a uh, an encounter with a, an animal as well um, whilst walking through some woodland um, just outside his farm. And it was getting dark again. But this chap, was a, a, a Canadian, he was a Canadian logger. I won't give you his name because he's still alive. But he was a Canadian logger who'd come over to work in, in England and got married. And, you know, th- this man never made anything up. You know, he didn't exaggerate anything. And, and he told us all in the pub. He said exactly what he'd seen and how close he'd come to it. And it echoed my sightings, big black cat. He'd seen it up maybe 100, I think it was about 100 feet away from him. And and this guy was maybe six foot eight. I think he was probably like 45, 50 at the time. Could probably break rocks by just looking at them. He'd made it back to the farmhouse pretty quick. This chap didn't run away from many things, but he said, you know, he, he was scared by what he'd seen. And he made his way back to the farmhouse as quickly as he possibly could. Brilliant. Yeah, that that was the other farm, Fellin Scott Farm. So yeah, it, it's a beautiful part of the world, Exmoor. But as I say, I think these animals are out there; they're here to stay. Let's hope that they um, keep a low profile and that they don't come into contact with humans, because if they do, then that will probably be sadly the end of them.
0: Well, thank you so much, Craig. It's really felt like we've you know been on tour in Exmoor in the last hour. I think Herefordshire on the podcast series so far is a little bit underrepresented in terms of my knowledge of uh, the the sightings that it, it can yield. But again, it's about um, People are very private, and it's a God's own country in Herefordshire, like a lot of rural Britain, but I'm sure we will have some encounters um, reported to us in the future from that part of the world as well. But thank you so much. I, I know listeners will appreciate that. We keep on thinking we've had or will we'll get from Exmoor, but it keeps on yielding, and I'm sure we'll be back uh, there soon again. But meantime, thanks so much for being on Big Cat Conversations
1: it's my immense pleasure rick and thank you for doing what you do because some of the content is incredibly interesting listening if you've got some sort of fascination with the subject so thank you yourself as well
0: great well you've just added to that and i'm sure we've all benefited and enjoyed it thanks ever so much craig all the best Just to say how nice it was to be in Lewis in East Sussex a couple of weeks back in March where we had a Big Cat pub evening. We'll hear some feedback on that in a couple of episodes time and that will be part of an episode on Sussex Big Cat sightings with our guest Charlie. And a quick note on one of the reports I've received during the past month here in Britain and it relates to the cold nights and often sunny mornings we've been having through much of March. And in those sorts of conditions, people sometimes see a large cat resting, warming up, sunning itself in the morning in places like field edges. That's a situation when people could see a large cat in daylight and have plenty of time to view it. Well, that's what happened to a witness in March in the mid-south of England, and the cat or a similar one was previously seen in that field two years previously. The witness has now discussed these incidents with the local farmer and he has agreed to a trail camera being set up there. So we'll see if the cat will oblige and sunbathe again, and the camera does its job. We'll keep you posted on that one, as we can, and again it shows the importance of local people forging links with landowners, and landowners happy to help, in the type of low-key investigations that we need to make more progress on this subject. For our next episode, we'll hear from a guest who had a close confrontation with the big cat several years back in the south part of Derbyshire. And that incident became a life-changing moment, sparking an interest in learning more about these cats and seeking more evidence. So, look forward to being back soon with that one, and if anyone wants to get in touch with ideas or would like to share their own sighting or encounter on the show, do feel free to email me the address is rick at bigcatconversations.com. Righto, we're signing off now, so thanks again to our guest Craig, and thank you everyone for listening in. Take care and bye for now.